Hi, I'm Dan Primat, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Wednesday, June 16th. Regeneron stock is up on positive news about its COVID treatment, Bitcoin prices are down, and we're focused on why the rent is too damn high. The lack of affordable housing isn't new. It's something that's been talked about by politicians and community leaders for decades, both in terms of home buying and home renting. But it does feel like we're in a different moment now, a housing cost boom that's leaving more people behind than ever before, and the frightening possibility that the end of the pandemic could lead to a wave of foreclosures and evictions as moratoriums and forbearance agreements subside. Why it matters isn't just the basic humanity of people needing a roof over their heads, although that's certainly part of it. Instead, it's that where people live determines nearly everything else about their lives, and inaffordability can lead to economic trade-offs about other purchases people can't make, including food. So the big question now is what we actually do about housing affordability, including how much of the responsibility lies with the public sector and how much with the private sector. For answers, we'll turn to Colleen Briggs, head of community development and inclusive economies at JPMorgan Chase, which this morning put out a detailed set of policy recommendations plus announced a five-year, $400 million philanthropic commitment toward improving affordable housing. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Colleen Briggs, head of community development and inclusive economies at JPMorgan Chase. So Colleen, uh, affordable housing has been an issue, arguably a crisis, I think for both of our lifetimes. What has the pandemic or this last year and a half revealed about it? That's exactly right. You know, I think we've for a long time known where you live determines how you live. We know it's important, right? Where you live is a leading determinant of your income, your wealth, your overall quality of life. We also know that owning a home is critical to building wealth and supporting stability over time. But what we see before the pandemic, but it's even more true now, is that for so many households, especially Black and Latinx, You know, access to stable, affordable housing and owning a home, it's increasingly out of reach. What we're seeing today is that the black-white homeownership gap is 30% points. That means that that is a greater percentage gap than it was in 1968 when housing discrimination was legal. And what we're seeing is that even on the rental side, you know, 40% of black and Latinx households are spending more than 30% of their income on housing. You know, what we are seeing is that These were challenges we saw before the pandemic, but again, they're widening pretty dramatically in response to the disruptions that we've seen over the last year. You talk about where we live. When you look at affordable housing in the United States as a whole, how localized or kind of broad and dispersed is the problem? Every single market has unique challenges, but we see that it's pervasive in most of the markets and throughout the United States. And it might vary. In some markets, it's more of a quality issue. You know, the types of housing stock might be dilapidated or older and not being well kept. In some markets, it's a price issue and where supply and demand continue to have dramatic gaps. And as a result, the cost of affordable housing is increasingly out of reach for the majority of working families. And I think what we're seeing in response is that most of the solutions are pretty scattershot. You know, they're looking locally at incremental solutions, but no one's really looking at tackling these structural barriers or the structural challenges in these markets. So let's talk about solutions. Uh, JP Morgan Chase today puts out a report about this on both the rental and the homeownership side. What are one or two of your top policy suggestions? You know, when you look at something as complex as the affordable housing challenges, 
the solutions have to be multifaceted. And so as part of our broader, you know, $30 billion commitment to advance racial equity, we're trying to think about sort of tackling this in a few different parts. The first is through our philanthropy. So how we actually work with community groups and mission-oriented partners, you know, to promote stability, to think about how you create pathways to home ownership. We're also looking at how we use the business. How can we change new business practices to actually help create more pathways to home ownership and to address some of these big issues like the residential appraisal process and some of the bias that we see there. And then to your point, you know, if we really want to scale these solutions and we want to address these structural issues, you have to look at policy. And that's where we're thinking about some of the most effective policies that it's going to take to move the needle. So that's everything from looking at short-term stability. That means making sure we get the right support to renters and landlords to help them weather this economic challenge that they've been facing over the last year to addressing some of these longer-term reforms, like how can we produce and preserve more affordable housing at lower costs? And that includes things like zoning reforms. What kind of zoning reform would help? So I think what we continue to see is that if you look at the local level, there are a host of barriers that are actually getting in the way of how we produce and preserve housing in this country. When we look at some restrictive planning and zoning policies, that's everything from single-family zoning or other sort of land use barriers, what we see is that those actually inhibit how we can actually produce housing in this country and actually respond to the growing demand in a lot of these communities, particularly in communities where we see there's good connections to good quality jobs or to high education. You know, some of the things that we're putting forward are things like, could we endorse, you know, national policies that would actually reward localities to design and implement comprehensive housing plans to increase the supply and affordability of housing and actually give grants to states and localities to help them reduce zoning? and land use barriers that actually inhibit the ability to develop more safe, affordable housing in communities. You talk in the report about how both the public and private sector have have a role in this. On, on the private sector side, who right now actually is incentivized to build affordable housing? So I think there's a lot of incentives in place at the local level and some at the national level to try to get you know more developers, um, to get different actors to think about how they could be more creative about how to actually produce housing in this country. What it's going to take to really move the needle, how do we make sure that the housing matches with the demand in those markets? So for example, if we see there's more than a 7 million you know, supply gap for the extremely low income households, how do we make sure that there's incentives that the housing that's being produced is actually made for those individuals? When you say the incentives, so you're talking about public incentives to private developers. Are there any, is it financially viable right now, generally speaking, for a private developer to go all in and build affordable housing as opposed to building, you know, million dollar condos? So I think it's got to be a mix of policy. So we do need subsidies. Like we have seen subsidies can play a critical role, but subsidies can't fill the gap alone. And I think this gets into like, how do we actually produce and construct housing in this country? We're doing it the same way we did 50 years ago. We've got to help, you know, really incentivize the private sector to think about new models for how they're actually constructing and producing affordable housing in a way that's actually faster, cheaper, and potentially more climate friendly. And so I think a good example is a company that we just invested in, Factory iOS, that's looking at new technology that could actually drive down the cost for how we're actually creating and you know constructing housing in this country. One of the things J.P. Morgan Chase announced today is that you're dispersing what you're calling, quote, community home lending advisors. What are those and how many of them do you plan to bring on? You know, this is part of our $30 billion commitment to address and advance racial equity. As part of that, we actually put a commitment out 
to originate an additional 40,000 home purchase loans for Black and Latinx households. So to do that, it's going to require us to think about you know, how we expand our presence in community, how we hire people, how we enhance our products. And that's also being part of policy reform. How do we make sure we have the people in communities, those trusted advisors um, who are actually going to be experts in that local housing market and in our down payment assistance programs? And those are called community home lending advisors. Are there certain places that you're prioritizing, whether that be urban versus rural or, or one urban market over another? You know, where we have really seen that we can excel is where we have a presence today. But I think what you saw in our $30 billion commitment is that we are trying to really make sure the $30 billion actually touches down locally. So now what we're doing is working really deep in the communities to listen to our partners and say, what are the challenges? What are the unique problems that you're facing today? Where we have a presence, where we can continue to have our core expertise and really make sure that we're meeting the needs of those communities. So we're doing that analysis now, listening, learning, and then trying to adapt our strategies to those markets to make sure that we're being responsive to the needs that they have locally. J.P. Morgan, obviously, you know, as a bank, does business with all sorts of landlords and private equity firms that own single-family homes that rent uh, to people. What requirements, if any, is the bank putting on those with whom it works in this regard? We are always trying to think about making sure that every facet of the firm is actually helping the affordability crisis and not undermining those goals. We are looking at you know, our clients and making sure that they are looking at things like exit strategies, rent increases, all of that really to understand, you know, are we actually making sure that they're part of the solution to these challenges that we're trying to address broadly? But I'm curious, are there particular guardrails? For example, you, the bank, because it's a major Wall Street bank, does business with the Blackstone Group, which has been a major owner of single family homes. So are there rules or questions that folks on the investment banking side have to ask before they sign a deal, which isn't necessarily one related to housing? We have rules sort of for all of our client transactions to understand what are the triggers, you know, how do we make sure that the clients that we're engaging with are not engaging in predatory practices that are contributing to positive practices in the communities. And I think we have risk committees that are set up, but we also have advisors from our community groups. In fact, you know, we've just been meeting with our community groups around some of these issues and making sure that as they continue to see risks in the market, that we can bring those back to our bankers so that our bankers can understand these emerging risks or how these practices could have negative impacts in the future. We've been talking a lot about affordability and, and homeowners. What's the biggest policy recommendation you have right now vis-a-vis -vis renters? If I could only do one, I actually do think, you know, zoning reforms is pretty critical. You know, how we incentivize localities to think about reforming restrictive zoning and land use policies is going to be critical if you look at long-term affordability issues. I think if you only look at one aspect, then you're not going to quite move the needle. And I think that's part of the challenge, to be frank, that most of the policy discussions have been focused on. And I think what we have learned again and again is that if you really want to address these systemic issues across housing, you've got to look holistically. And that's everything from how do we make sure there's equitable access to rental housing? How do we make sure that Renters who are in struggling with eviction or others have the protections that they need. You know, how do we make sure that we address some of these longer-term homeownership challenges in the marketplace? So I think my main recommendation is that we really have to think holistically to actually move the needle on this one. Colleen, final question for you. Who ideally do you want to read and act on this report? Is it HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or someone else? You know, I think it's going to require actually a lot of different actors. It's everyone from you know, legislative action to regulatory reforms that are going to be required to address these issues. As you'll see, there's just no one single actor that we're calling upon. This is going to be actually quite a host of different policymakers at the national and in some ways local levels to really help move the needle on this, this one. Colleen Briggs of JPMorgan Chase, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Have a good one. 
Welcome back. What we're watching today is Geneva, Switzerland, where President Biden and Russia's Vladimir Putin met for just over three hours, following a brief photo op that became a viral video when security tried to force reporters from the room. The upshot is none of us really know what happened during the meeting because there was no neutral third party present. Instead, it was just the two leaders. Plus, for the first part, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. But what we do know from subsequent press conferences with both leaders is that the countries did make at least some tacit commitments to work together on issues of cybersecurity and arms control, while seemingly disagreeing on topics like Ukraine and human rights issues like the treatment of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The bottom line? They met. But they didn't seem to move the needle much on improving relations, which are at a post-Cold War low, as neither Biden nor Putin invited the other to visit for a subsequent meeting. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiara. Please be sure to leave us a review. And if you're not already following or subscribing to the podcast, do so. Have a great national fudge day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.